0: About, I'm fine. Like, you know, I, w- I wanted to. I have another topic that I want to discuss,
1: and it's partially related to death,
0: right? So, I was I wanna, thinking,
1: I wanted to the uh, how the world wars make the selection, okay? Like, I was um, thinking about it recently, and, I, and I'm quite curious to, to know what you're
0: thinking. Cool, well, so I was sort of thinking that existential threats would be a topic which. You know, would tie together death and AI, could certainly tie together world wars. Um, hey, ex- existential what? Existential threats, you know, like the concept. Well, I wanted to talk about end of the world mythology and, and existential threats, like threats to the existence of humanity. So what's known as an existential threat, something that might cause the, uh, the extinction of the human race and how that connects with you know, uh, end-of-the-world mythology. And so I thought AI was, a, yeah. was actually a good way into that as well. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. So where do we start? Well, start with your... If you've got an idea for um, the World War. Yeah, my idea. Something. Okay. Uh, I was thinking that <clears throat> uh,
1: just through the sheer amount of uh, casualties in the First and Second World War, we can at least kind of... um. Uh, hypothesize that uh, uh, it created a huge selection pressure towards non-violent behavior mm. in the, like, mm. Germany, in the, like, you know, both of the world wars, sure. and in some way, some sense in Russia, mm. and also on to, uh, like, in Russia, I think, it created a huge selection pressure against fitness of the males because of the mm. amount of casualties and especially the amount uh, like, of casualties in the um, like kids, right, who didn't leave any progeny. Sure. Because first, their fathers went, they were wiped out, and then they themselves went, and they were partially wiped out. Sure, yeah. So, uh, I mean, or like, I think, in like, you know, just it's generalization, obviously, but in Russia, males, they, you know, on average, they don't look good. And I was thinking that that can be tied to that. Because, you know, a strong-feet males they went to war and died. Mm. And so, uh, <laughs> people, like you know, whoever remained, basically, you, know, like you have a tremendous yeah, uh, you know, yeah. gap in the gene pool. Sure,
0: I don't know why that. I'm laughing, except that it's not very politically correct to say the things that you're saying, but it's certainly not funny. But yes, go on yeah i'm not like it's not i mean i'm not saying that
1: every russian male is ugly i'm just saying that on average they aren't really pretty and do you have and reason to believe I, that that's i do think you know vodka has something to do with it sure. but i also think that world war ii you know, do you and, have like, you know to... civil war yeah like it, like i think you know in russia and germany were in similar sense kind of under uh, like those you know selections mm. uh, for two generations so, it's some, somewhat, you know, more clear in Germany, because you have the first generation of people who really want to w- go to war, right? Yeah. They're militaristic, they're like, you know, First World War, they're like, we will go to war, you know, we want to go to war, and we're talking about the war that is, you know, offensive, it's not defensive war, right? So, sure. you have all those people who are really, you know, into aggression, into violence, and they go into war, and, you know, like... Several years later, we don't have them anymore, and mm-hmm. then we have their kids going to war in the Second World War, and then we don't have them anymore. Like, yeah, you know, uh, well, I was looking at the figures, and it's like you know, in the Second World War, it's like five million people who casual, war casualties, like soldier casualties in Germany.
0: In Germany, and right. out of you know, s- hmm? okay, because I thought it was it was under yeah. twenty million worldwide, like fifteen million, right. or for of Europe. Um, the whole lot oh, it, it, no it's more, it's more that it's
1: more than that it's like you know it's like 30 million in Russia it's like huge oh, okay. really the first it's something, world i, mean, I, mean, I wouldn't put 30 million you know but like it's in russia it was really really bad yeah. like russia suffered the most in the second world so, war so for some reason i but, have, I have
0: uh, for some reason i have the numbers in my yeah, mind of that it was under 20 million for world I'll, war 1 and and about 50 or something or 40 something for <laughs> world war 2 but i could be really wrong about that that's just what's jumping into my mind but um, yeah, I think yeah. I mean, has... I don't know
1: about the, the, the soldiers. Yeah, in Russia, it was uh nine million military deaths. Oh wow! And okay. then uh, uh like uh, four fourteen million dead and missing service personnel. Wow! And uh, like yeah. the total loss of war by somebody say that it's over forty million
0: in Russia. So this is World War One. No, this is World War Two. Oh yeah, this okay. is World War Two. Right. Yeah, so I'm, I thought yeah, so I thought World War Two was was considerably higher than World War One. Yeah, um, yeah, no it is it is. But in, in World War
1: One in Germany, it's like two million uh, soldiers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then right. in the World War, II, it's, it's five million soldiers. Right, yeah, yeah. So I mean, and it's, we're talking it, about like no, it's like thirty million males in Germany at that time and we have 5 million of them down sure sure like, yeah this no, is it's huge yeah but the population right okay yeah and
0: so, yeah so i think i mean and, there's a number of really interesting ideas in what you've said um, one is obviously you're suggesting that the health of the russian males in terms of you know whether they are great physical specimens so to speak is potentially impacted by this which is a different thing from you initially started talking about a selection for um, a non-violent, yeah, non-aggressive behavior, and and all and the other yeah. thing about that is that there was clearly a very very huge sort of cultural selection for for that, for obvious reasons, um, particularly after the um, you know Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki, that was a huge event like a cultural. Event in terms of its evolutionary impact, uh, and perhaps that's why nuclear weapons have never had to be used again. Um, but the g- yeah, the genetic impact—I'm sure there was some genetic impact as well. Obviously, whether that would be as possible or easy to tease apart the ultimate effect of that, I'm not sure. Uh, but I think it's certainly plausible you know, that I, I don't it think would it's have had an in general, Yes, but I'm
1: um, uh, like even the Russia side Russia aside. Uh, like, in Germany, in particular, like, you know, concentrated on Germany, it would, like, you would think that, you know, people who go to to war in the first wave, they will be the ones who, you know, uh, it's like, sign in, like, you know, on their own will. So, yeah, you will have people who sure. are, you know, eager to fight
0: and come from then families and
1: die. so, families essentially, you know, you run out of them, I guess. Yeah, And, and would... if, if you do it two generations in a row, You would like it, just makes sense, you know, that uh, you would create a huge bias, you know, against like violent, aggressive behavior. And because, you know, like we will see that in the uh, animals, if we hunt down, you know, alpha males, Mm. then we have, you know, severe change of the population, right? And even if we, you know, remove like 10% of alpha males, we already see change. And in here, we remove, you know, 5 million out of 30 million. Mm. And like that's you know like that's more than you know yeah, it's under like 20, that's yeah. o- almost twenty percent, right? Yeah under so, yeah.
0: 20 yeah. percent.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Um yeah no I, I totally think it, 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 is a, it is a plausible argument. And especially as particularly for, for World War One, as you're suggesting, a lot of those people come from families which themselves would have had a history of military service because Yeah. In a in a lot of cases it's it's that is a family tradition really. And people are following in their father's footsteps and all that kind of stuff. So yes, I think it's entirely plausible that war on that scale has some sort of major selection pressure. And I think there are lots of precedents for that. There are there are things that um are more obviously evident in in the genome like what's the percentage of, of people who are you know descended from genghis khan that's always the the famous one isn't it um, mm-hmm. and you know clearly there's a more direct um way of of determining that sort of thing but certainly it shows there was a strong selection pressure wherever genghis khan went um for, for the kind of women that Genghis Khan liked, for example, um, and for people who surrendered rather than um, you know fought against the Khans, because obviously fought against the Mongols, because I believe they, they did spare some people who, who surrendered immediately, um, and also for people who didn't kill their women, all sorts of things. There, there was a very potent selection pressure on the march of that Time. So I think the, the idea that war in general could form a very potent selection pressure is, yeah, I think it, it's, it's almost, it's probably hard to argue the opposite of that, to argue against that idea. Yeah, but I think,
1: like, in this case, what I, what I you know, find interesting is that it happens only two generations. So sure. it's like, you know, we basically, like, you know, it's almost, you know, an experimental setup when yeah. you, you know, get the selection in the first generation then you, you know, get the same selection on the second generation sure. to kind of completely remove sure. that, you know, trade or something. And the scale of the war here is I'm, unique.
0: The scale of the war, in this case, the, the, the number of casualties yeah. is unique. But the fact that there are two major wars in two generations, that's not unique. And there would have been lots of societies in the past in which... And it would be interesting just to see the sort of relative percentages... Of, of men in some, you know, given warlike society of the past would die in war every generation. Obviously, there'd be a lot less people, but there'd be a lot less people within those societies and they would be perhaps more insular so they didn't mix. You know, go back to, to tribal warfare. Uh, and I'm sure lots of tribes were just completely wiped out, which is the ultimate selection pressure, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. So... I think but I think you know what's what's somewhat somewhat different here
1: is the idea of cons- conscription. Uh, sure. So uh, yeah, like the fact that you you know get to kill the generation that didn't have bro didn't have chance to uh, leave any progeny. Sure. Uh, no progeny. Yeah. yeah. Whatever yeah. they were, children.
0: Yeah. Pro- um, progeny is fine. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, like, and. Because, you know, previously, like, you know, if you go to Sparta or something in you know, a yeah. war-like society, they mm. would usually go to, you know, the, the war bands, the army would be composed of people who have kids. Yeah. Like, you know, you, you obviously start training, but, you know, like in Sparta, you will have kids when you're like around 20-something, and then you go on to, you know, warring when you're after that, so you have to have kids because sure. that's you know, the old idea that you leave yeah. somebody behind so that you know we get to replenish you
0: sure and I mean obviously uh, the Spartans had a had a famously structured approach to all of that kind of stuff and maybe the Greeks in general did and the Spartans were you know those who took war and military service particularly seriously and so had a, a very rational framework within which to do that but I, all I'm saying is that, You know, war has been a fairly commonplace thing in human history. And there will have been many, many cases where huge numbers of men, large percentages of of men would have been killed in war, perhaps before having children. And again, tribes will have been wiped out. So I'm basically agreeing with you. I'm just saying that there's a selection pressure going all the way from, you know, genocide, tribe completely wiped out by war. That's the ultimate selection pressure all the way up to, you know, other variants of that, such as, as what we see with, with the world wars that you've brought up. So I think, yeah, I think yeah. It's, it's completely... Yeah. But but I think, like, you know, in here, I'm
1: kind of, you know, like, I, the second interesting point here that kind of ties with that is yeah. how it affects our group mentality. Because essentially, yeah. you know, the survivors were, uh, like, our, you know, biased towards people who were were saying that we should not go to war, you know. It's biased against people who don't want to go to war and try all the means not to get involved with that. And so then we have the survivors, you you know, them, and they're like, we told you that it's not a good idea, right? And so in the when we do it, you know, in a couple of times, that can kind of explain, at least partially, why we are as a humanity moving toward, like I mean not as humanity but as like Western civilization sure.
0: moving
1: away from the idea of you know like large scale imperialism, large scale conflicts yeah, between sure, us. Yeah, sure. I'm sure that has an because effect because like biasing biasing it, You know, it's like you know a. Um, a self-perpetuating thing right sure. so we have we're biasing genetics and then genetics is biasing social yeah. uh interactions and like you know cultural ideas and then that you know acts on you know selection of genes and so on
0: yeah i think it's very clear that the world wars had a huge effect on our disposition towards war and towards violent behavior and i think that the, yeah. the genetic um <clears throat> pathway yeah i don't mean, know is, nobody, is like you know I, I know it.
1: that nobody will you know uh, argue with that, and that's like the consensus that yeah. we are, you know, we don't have colonialism in a, in a large way, imperialism, because of the world court. My point is, how much of that is it's because genetic, we yeah. are not, not only changing our cultural uh, discourse, but uh, okay. yeah, so my point is, uh, how much of... Uh, the fact that we're moving away from the uh, imperialism and colonialism Mm -hmm. is not because we're changing the way we think about it. So it's not because we're changing
0: the cultural discourse, but Mm. because we are actively altering our gene pool in a large way. Which is having the same consequence, which is changing the way we think about it. So (laughs) whichever the way, I understand exactly what you mean, but the consequence that you described, you you said it's not because we're changing the way we're thinking about it. So whether it's coming via a genetic pathway or more of a cultural pathway, or as, you know, is basically the way it is, I, I would imagine, coming through both pathways um, and trying to work out the relative weighting of each pathway is obviously going to be very, very confounded and difficult. But the end result is the same, which is that we, we're we less into yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. So I, I totally see where, where you're coming from, and I think it's a pretty rational argument. By, by your own... Um, Model though that idea of people protesting against war and being you know uh, nonviolent um, objectors and conscientious objectors and all that kind of stuff that already has to exist for your selection pressure to operate, which means that that sentiment was perhaps already growing enough for it to be you know ready to become dominant with a little bit of a leg up from the fact that the gene pool was going to be a little bit. So it's like I don't want to say it's exapted; it's not exapted because it's already got the, the function that it does. But there is kind of a, a little bit of a escape and radiate phenomenon when, um, or, a, or a release phenomenon when the gene pool is slightly cleared of a certain kind of, uh, you know, genotype that produces a more violent behavioral phenotype, and there's an opportunity now for this conscientious objector. Uh, you know, mode to invade. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, obviously, be all, like, you know, you also have the um, distribution of, you know, aggressive behavior, uh, like, you know, the propensity to be aggressive and violent on the population, right? Sure. So you yeah. will have, you know, people who are uh, objectors uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever, uh, the pacifists, yeah. they will be obviously on, you know, the minimum of that uh, Yeah. Like, they could be, you know, less aggressive sure. and for sure. less um, uh, keen to be violent. And so, <clears throat> then we are, by selecting, you know, for that, you're yeah. basically bias and, you know, like skewing it towards for that. For sure,
0: yeah. It's, it's, like a, it's like a change of niche, you know. Um, and if if, yeah. if niche is, well, maybe I'm, I'm drawing a, a slightly long bow there, but I was going to say, if, if the niche is also a cultural niche, so if the world wars have a really big impact on our on our cultural niche. So, you know, enough people are shocked by them that it kind of changes the zeitgeist in, in some way. Then those people who are genetically predisposed towards being nonviolent and all that, they're going to thrive within that cultural setting anyway. So there's, again, there's kind of like a, you can't tease apart the genetic and cultural elements very easily oh, because yeah, no, they're going to the, be snowballing. Yeah, no, head. you can't.
1: Uh, I'm just, like, my point is, basically, and my, I think my logic point is yeah. that it would be quite interesting yeah. to consider, you know, genetics yeah. uh, in history. Sure. So, in human, like you know, see yeah. how actually in human history we are, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, well, how we're we changing our traits through the changes of our, you know, the way we yeah. live, and the how, they change, how the changes so. of the way we live are actually... Uh, brought in because we change our gene pool.
0: Sure, I mean that that feedback uh, mechanism between the two. Yeah. What's the name of that? There is a theory. Uh, I think it's um, Boyd and Richardson are the I think originators or those, um, you know, evolutionary sociobiologists. I guess you might call them who are most associated with that theory. But it's like the two streams or the two, um, and it, it, it is it is an attempt to to model that uh, you know reciprocal selection pressure that you know genetics and culture have on each other I haven't really engaged deeply with their work it, it's been it was you know quite major works of, of um, what would you call it you know cultural Darwinism going back to the um I think in the 90s 80s or 90s they might have been first publishing that kind of stuff and I think it was you know, at that time, you had only—it was a less of a thriving field. So I think they were one of the big, um, you know, foundational ideas within that, you know, cultural evolutionary biology domain, which I now think is is a sort of fairly thriving field. There are a lot of people who who still hate that idea, and then of course things like mimetics are are shunned even by most people within that field because it, they say it's not rigorous enough or it's not quantifiable enough or it's not enough like a gene a meme is not enough like a gene look at all these ways that a meme is not like a gene how can you possibly say memes exist <laughs> which is an interesting argument yeah. um but um, yeah yeah or, or they think it's not a useful description basically but yeah I, unfortunately I, I the name of that theory escapes me but i think the yeah the authors of boyd and richardson so i, I do think it is a, it is an idea that that um lots of people have wanted to pursue and i'm not really sure what the state of the field is there but i think it's always been considered to be extremely difficult and therefore it's sort of still a little bit in the too hard basket because it's too complicated the way these things would would play off each other and people still have a very dualistic concept like um conception of a lot of that yeah. kind of stuff yeah, as well. Yeah, like so. it's
1: either culture or
0: genes. Yeah. it's
1: either it's either that or you know, and we're like our thoughts are separate from our yeah. um, things, you know, from our body, and that, uh, <clears throat> yeah, like humans are different to other animals because they have culture, mm-hmm. and the culture is completely independent of their biology. Yeah, I hate that kind of thinking. Yeah, it's I mean, just, I just think there's it's like. I, I just I just don't get it how people can be like, yeah, you know, all the other uh, animals they are biological, you know, objects, but humans aren't. Humans are different. Well it's because a, they have language because and they have culture. a soul. I mean it's, yeah, it's a Christian and, idea uh, you really is not modulates have yeah. horns and crocodiles yeah. have scales and they are yeah. also different <laughs> from other animals. So yeah.
0: Just, yeah, exactly. I mean I think that just there's a great deal of, of confused thinking In that whole area, like anywhere where you get, um, you know, thoughts versus something physical or anything where consciousness is being discussed or anything that seems purely informational or or all of that kind of stuff. I think because of the great technical difficulties um, in really, you know, bringing those two things together in a... In what might be considered a modern scientific manner, like in a quantifiable way, is so difficult. And and any any talk about mechanism, you know, we know we still know so little about, um, obviously about consciousness. I mean, we know so much about cognition now, or we know a lot about cognition, and that's really where some of this fusing has to has to be taking place as well. And and clearly, yeah. clearly is taking place. I mean, cognitive psychology and all that kind of stuff but i think it's just that as as we get uh, as neuroscience advances and also i think it the very important task of philosophers uh, to be in there pulling apart all this kind of stuff and seeing where this you know one you know intuition pump that is, is causing shoddy thinking about this subject or whatever just trying to pull everything apart and understand things and i do think that's a really important like understand concepts better I think that's a really, really important task that can facilitate the develop of those disciplines as, you know, more rigorous hard sciences at the same time. But I think, you know, we're still we're still lagging on that on that ability to connect mechanism in terms of brain activity with cognition on a fine enough scale. And of course we, we you know, whenever consciousness even seems to be part of the picture, everybody freaks out.
1: <laughs> yeah, but we also, you know, like, there is a huge problem that we are studying ourselves. This is just skewing everything, yeah. because we're, oh, yeah, we yeah, have yeah. our preconceived ideas about what we are and how we think, and everybody seems to be an expert on how yeah. he or she thinks, yeah. and then they're like, no, that's not how I feel about it, so sure. therefore it's not how it is, sure. and it's like, nah, that's not actually how it works. Yeah, and, yeah uh, I, I absolutely love is, this that. This is a big issue, yeah. and like human notion of human dignity is a huge <laughs> issue here okay, because yeah. it can be applied in a different way. And I mean, historically, we kind of a, we are the apex of the, I mean, at least in Western civilization, apex of the, of nature. <laughs> we are masters of nature, and yes. that you know dualist. I think you know you can probably uh, see the roots of that dualism, at least some of the roots. In that kind of a thinking, that there is nature and there is us. Oh, yeah. you know, there are things that we do are artificial. Absolutely. And you know the yeah. the selection that we uh, apply on animals is yeah. artificial, artificial selection, selection right? Sure. It's different from natural well, selection. Well, it is. So because I, I we think... are different from nature, yes. we are not yeah. nature. Yeah. No, the words are, are clumsy. We are humans.
0: But... Yeah. The, the, right? I, of course, I can. Com- you know, you know how much I agree with that sentiment. That the words, <laughs> the words are very, very clumsy. And that, of course, humans are part of nature, and our, I mean, sort of ironically or, or almost oxymoronically, when you're talking about the etymology, our artifacts are natural. However, there is a clear difference between artificial selection and natural selection when you take those as defined terms. The words artificial and natural are misleading. But there are obviously quite, you know, intelligent design might be a better way of of saying artificial selection. And of course, a lot of people, yeah, but how do you tease
1: apart, you know, ant selection versus, you know, human selection? Like ants, you know, select other insects. You know, they they get whatever nutrients from them. They, you know, guard them. They select yeah. them. Yeah. You know, we, do, we do the same with cows on a different scale and on a different level, but yeah. it's essentially the same process.
0: Sure. No, I, I, I think just, just like culture, just like consciousness, all of these things exist on some kind of spectrum. Of course, I think that yeah. there are you know, very great differences between human intelligent design and what ants do. However, any organism exerting a selection pressure on another organism is where this kind of thing starts. And that, of course, all organisms do that. Humans take that to the nth degree because niche modification is our niche, you know? So we change the environment to suit us. We don't change to suit the environment. And of course, you know, that's been an incredibly successful strategy, but it necessarily means that we're gonna exert the greatest selection pressure. We're gonna marginalize the greatest number of other organisms and have the greatest impact. Um, relative to to any other organism of the past, with the possible exception of the first photosynthetic bacteria, um, yeah, but but I mean, man, like you know, I don't see I don't see how it, it's the uh,
1: you know artif- like artificial selection or rather anthropogenic selection is anyhow not a subset of natural selection.
0: Of course it is. No, I'm I'm completely agreeing that it is, and there there are different streams. Of, of that human uh, selection, you know, of the selection pressure that humans are placing on other organisms. And it is it is useful and important to be able to differentiate between these. So so one is the selection pressure that we exert on other organisms simply by living the way humans live. So, you know, we, we build houses, we, we clear yeah. land, we do all that kind of stuff. And until very recently, we haven't considered the impact that that had on the environment you know other than that we were making the environment better for us to live in but of course that's always yeah. been a huge huge selection pressure that we've exerted but then our intelligent design stream like where we have domestic animals and we do we do selective breeding specifically looking for certain traits and you know even now obviously all the genetic modification that we do for 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 many different reasons from you know pure research applications through to making better crops and all of that that is it's on a spectrum in some way. And, of course, it's natural because humans are part of nature. So, by definition, it's natural. But it is useful to be able to distinguish that kind of process, not because it doesn't have anything akin with uh, the other process. It does, and it comes from that in some way, but it is very different from that as well. So, that's why we talk about something like intelligent design. Um yeah, I mean, it's very different because it's
1: closer to us, and it yeah. is very different in the way that, you know, selection on land is different from selection what in water. It's, like, you know, different in the way that if you choose to see it you know, on a special axis, yeah. you know, it will be different, but then if you choose to see it on a different, you know, axis, then it will be different, it will be the same, because, you know, uh, like, it's it can be treated basically as the complex selection force, yep. the same way as you know, desert can be treated as complex selection force. Sure. Like the the notion of agents can be completely removed in terms of like the way we alter the world. It will just be can, can be treated basically as a blind force, just complex one.
0: Sure, that would be one way of. Um modeling its causal or its causation or whatever its causality like its impact on the world that would not be an explanation of it because the explanation would necessarily include cognition and consciousness and that kind of stuff you know it would necessarily include the arguments made by the people who actually had a specific goal in mind but you don't need yeah, that. Yeah, I amen. But then, yeah.
1: then you can you can choose the uh the level of the level of explanation you want because of then course. you can say you know hey cognition and you know stuff is explained by the neural processes of in the course. brain. and Neural processes are explained many by people, atoms. Many So it all boils down to the movement of atoms and electrolytes in you know human brain. Yeah, yeah. So localized movement of electrolytes. It's not not anyhow different <laughs> from localized movement of air masses in the sky.
0: Yeah. So we we've. We've talked about this quite a bit, and obviously, I, uh, I, don't know, I haven't published that piece on the blog yet, have I? But we've talked about the levels of, of analysis issue many, many, many times. Yeah. And you know my attitude towards that: there are no privileged frameworks. Yeah. So you you know, no specific <coughs> level of analysis is uh, the level at which you know causation actually occurs. Because I'm a monist, because the whole universe is, you know, made of one stuff, in this sense. Um, so it's all part of the same. System. Jehovah, it's made of Jehovah. It's made of Jehovah. It's made of Jehovah. Yeah. So the, you know, in some sense, the whole thing is is a is a continuous system. Uh, and we don't need to go down that road right now. But the the major and very important caveat of that is that no levels, no level of analysis. Has any kind of causal precedence in some kind of metaphysical sense, but in an analytical sense, the and therefore potentially in an ex, in its explanatory potency, um, each level of analysis is the level on which causation has to be analyzed like if you want to understand relations on that level you have to treat it as the causal level sorry i didn't explain that very well but um you at least know what i'm talking about because i've explained this to you before for those listening it might be uh that might not have been the best explanation but um so Again, it's an artifact of an artifact of analysis that any given level, like atoms or thoughts, uh, is the causal level within that analysis. It's not, yeah, the, but so if it's we, necessary. If we are
1: anal- analyzing the yeah. humans, uh, you know, anthropogenic selection in the light of, you know, how we should change it. Then yes, you know, like intelligent design and consciousness is, you know is the proper level of uh, explanation here. But if we're analyzing it in a way that, you know, hey, how the population of, you know, phoenix, forces, you know, phoenix foxes changed over, you know, centuries... Then it's not important whether it was conscious or unconscious. What is important and how it affected phenic foxes. Oh, for sure. So in that case, it's not, not anyhow different from you know the changes of the Sahara desert and the you know change of temperature over yeah. the centuries. That's
0: why I said that if you just wanted to m- model its causal impact and the you know the selection pressures that it had exerted on on other parts of its environment, then you wouldn't need actually its explanation. So I'm, d- I'm distinguishing between what would be an explanation yeah. of it and what would merely be a you know, quantitative analysis of it, a description of it. Those are, those are two different branches of science in some sense. You know? They're two different tasks. It's like if you want to know, you know, just bring it to our own field, if you're doing proteomics and you do a complete description, you identify every protein in a you know, complex mixture of proteins like a venom, Venoms are composed of, of proteins. Um, we call them toxins. If you identify every toxin in there, every protein, including the non toxins, and you've got the total proteome, you've got a description. This is what exists here. You've got. You don't have any kind of explanation of the thing unless you start bringing in a study of the selection pressures. So, and that will always be. Um, bias towards, you know, you're studying the selection pressures on, you know, on the organism or the venom in this case, the the, the um, mixture of toxic proteins. So you don't, you, in the case of the fennec foxes, when you're studying the selection pressure on them, you don't need to explain the selection pressure in totality because you're trying to explain the impact of it on the, um, on the fes- fennec foxes. Whereas if you were studying, as you said, you know human behaviour and the reasons that they do things and why we exert selection pressures of this kind on fennec foxes and all the sorts of questions that humans are interested in about humans, then you would need to talk about cognition and agency and all that kind of stuff. And of course, humans are going to be very biased in the sense that we think we are the only ones who analyse things in in a certain way and do a certain kind of cognitive processing, have a certain kind of language that facilitates that and thus exerts a special kind of intelligent selection pressure that we actually do intelligent design. Of course, we, we are in some sense biased towards believing that, but at the same time, Of acknowledging that bias, I don't really see any reason to doubt that that's the case either. Um, So. I think, even though you can certainly claim that humans have a bias—that we, you know, we we are very obsessed with humans—I think yeah, you can no, equally I mean, claim. Like you can boil it down to the fact, yeah. You can boil it down to the fact
1: that it's our science that we're doing our science, and within our science, since it's done by us, yes, there will always be clear distinctions of our activity and of not course. our activity. But I, but I'm because not, but this am our activity. Like science is part of our activity. Yes, but I and think the I see. Think... Extension: of the way yes. we frame. The world. Yes. And
0: so but I do think it's it is actually more than that as well. So you can boil it right down to that, but I think that you're actually uh probably cutting out a big part of the story, which is that humans don't only think humans are special because humans are humans. You know, humans are and again, all organisms are unique as well and you can throw that argument back in there, but humans are unique in particular ways that have drastic consequences for all organisms on the planet, and even can have potentially drastic con- uh, consequences for other parts of of the solar system, or even or the galaxy, or or you know who knows. Yeah, what, what but we the, could scale, do. the
1: scale the scale that's unique.
0: Yeah, you know, yeah,
1: but the scale of the impact doesn't say anything about the you know type of impact. So you can have you know if meteor strikes, it will be the you know if the impact will be huge. So, but it still will be you know within the realm of natural selection. Yeah. So it's. Like the fact that we can affect the ecosystem in a dramatic way doesn't mean that we can affect it in a different way.
0: Yeah, I, I, I've already sort of conceded that humans. I mean, I didn't concede it. I've, as you know, I've, I've always believed that humans are part of nature and that the distinction between nature, the natural and the artificial, is a somewhat arbitrary one created by humans because humans are particularly interested in humans. But at the same time, what I'm saying is that there is something very different about humans from all other animals specifically on this axis. It's true that we're particularly interested in this axis because it is the axis on which we differ from all other animals. But I think any other animal who had the ability to be interested in in humans in this way would also be interested in this particular axis because it is the, the difference through which we make a difference. You know, it's the difference that makes a difference. We're, we're different from other organisms as far as we know based on evidence that, you know... The burden of proof is very much on the people who claim that humans are not different from other organisms, because we have such a great deal of ways in which humans do things that, so far as we know, no other organisms do. Um yeah. but it's like you know in, i mean i'm not disagreeing that you know we have a dramatic impact I'm are not disagreeing
1: about. that we yeah. have a diff, like a special way in which we have that impact yeah but my point is that every other organism will have its own unique way and you can make an axis on that way yes. and on the, you know on that axis of specific but you know the or the species will not be, anything it like will be at the dramatic. top you know like cows are at the top of me- methane production or whatever yeah right yeah. so you can say that no other <laughs> Organism in terms of methane production yeah. is as you know impactful on, you know, on planet Earth as cows are. But I think you And already, it doesn't matter that you yeah. know they are here because of us, because we mm. are here because of them in equally way. You know, you and not so, in an equal way, uh, no. Like, in a very different if way. If it wasn't if you it know, for cows, horses, and dogs, we wouldn't be here. You know, we yeah. would be somewhere else, I guess, but we wouldn't be here. But look,
0: I think I think you already. You know, very much understand the the negation of that argument. So once again, like in principle, I completely know where you're coming from, and completely agree. But you still have to make a. Um, it's 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 very obvious that human, you know, cows might be on top of the methane thing, but we can talk about the number of different ways in which humans um, affect the environment. We can talk about the extent to which humans uh, affect the environment in comparison to any other species. We can talk about... and, And you can't rule out us talking about the fact that cows are as prevalent as they are on the planet because of us, because that's also true. Yeah, and yeah, in no, a different I, yeah, way. I mean, I just, yeah, I just said that. But yeah. my point is that, you know, if it wasn't for cows, we wouldn't be as prevalent no, on the planet yes, as we are. but in a different, obviously, in a different way. Um, and, again, we're responsible for a lot more other things than the prevalence of cows. So... Oh, for sure. So, uh, I, but I mean, uh, the presence I, I, of oxygen in
1: the air is present, is, you know, responsible for everything.
0: Sure, so. sure. So as, as, you know, we already touched on, we are the second organism to cause a mass extinction, not the first one. And, and I'm, you know, I'm really refreshed and pleased to note that quite a lot more people are at least pointing that out as an interesting fact. In the last couple of years, than were before that, because it seemed like before that, no, you know, this is the first mass extinction ever caused by an organism, uh, and no, it's not, you know. Yeah, but I mean, but, but, yeah, but to be fair, we're not, we're not in the mass extinction yet, are we? We're not, we're not there yet. It really, yeah, it depends obviously on, on who you ask. In, in terms of the fact that of the number of species that have gone extinct, no, but in terms of the, in you know, the models that we we have. To predict how many species are going to go extinct, then people will say that we already are in the midst of that mass extinction, and I really think that's a moot point anyway. I, th- you know, humans are, are also really special in the fact that they can notice the fact that they're causing a mass extinction and try to reverse it. You know, and and the photosynthetic bacteria never did that. You know. Yeah, I think the more special way, the more special thing here is actually that you touched on is
1: our ability to cause the kind of you know destruction of the entire planet, like. I don't think that can be kind of different. I think you know, I don't think any other organism, in principle, could have done that.
0: Yeah, but I, I actually think it's, it's really different <laughs> as well that we could notice that we were doing that and change our course of action. So, talk about a, you know, keystone species like, like ants in some areas, and it could even be a single colony of ants, like a super colony. But it doesn't matter. Like, think of the way, of course, you know. Pe- lots of people have have thought about this the way that ants can modify an ecosystem within within a local area to serve their needs you know they can they can change vegetation structures they can affect you know obviously a lot of organismal biota a lot of insect life in the area and and all sorts of things and those can have follow-on effects that that could um you know maybe they increase the amount of, of grassland or something like that whatever they have a big effect But the ants, so far as we know, and we have good reasons to believe this, it's not just, oh, you only believe that because you're a human. I think we have pretty good reasons to believe that at no point are the ants likely to notice that they are, um, you know, again, we're talking about consciousness here because you could easily say that if if ants change the environment too drastically, they start to die off. There's a selection pressure on ants that don't change the uh, environment as drastically, and they go into some kind of, of quasi-equilibrium, some kind of um, temporary e- equilibrium with their environment. But humans do have this different thing. I do think it is different, of course I do, because I, I very much believe in the causal potency of, of consciousness and of, of human thought and language and all that kind of stuff. So I believe it is quite different that a human or a group of humans, could start to talk amongst themselves about the fact that they are um, precipitating a mass extinction and then modify enough people's behavior to actually change the, the course of events there. And, and I actually think that we're already at that point. So we might not avert a mass extinction and we, we might not avert a massive bottleneck of humans and all that kind of stuff. But I think that the level of environmentalism now has already changed. Like if the level of environmentalism was capped in in that of the 1950s or 60s or something, we've already changed the future in this sense, that whatever's coming has been changed by the rise of environmentalism. And I think that that kind of thing, and of course, again, I, you know, I can think of arguments that you could come up with that could make this kind of cultural, you know, a, a behaviour spreads through a population and then people start. Uh, and lots of people come up with that and, and they try to minimise the causal impact, again, of consciousness and of the particular kind of cognition that humans do. But I don't think you can actually do that without retreating into some form of dualism because then you're starting to say that that special, yeah. that special kind of information... Yeah, that goes on in human brains. Yeah,
1: I mean, I agree agree with you here, but at the same time, don't you think that there is at least uh, somewhat, uh, you know, like we assess ants as the, you know, whatever, non-intelligent or non conscious whatever, we assess them, uh, like, because we aren't them and we don't have insights into, you know, what their interactions are and its fullness, but also, you know, compare it to the fact that a lot of humans, as you now, you know, like, uh, touched on, actually believe that consciousness is not causal you mm. know like that our yeah. thoughts are not causal yeah. so we, if we think that about ourselves mm. and yeah. the only opposition against that comes from other humans who are like yeah guys yeah, yeah. you know hold on like think you know like you know analyze how you feel analyze what you process right analyze yeah. your yeah. You insight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So imagine if we didn't have that insight into humans, yeah. We would you know, like people would be just like, yeah, you know, consciousness is not causal. Those guys are not not conscious at all, they just do whatever. Sure. And so how yeah. much of that thinking is actually affecting our perception of ants because we don't have that insight into them.
0: I think I think that you are right that there are biases and that people don't attribute uh, enough consciousness or elements of consciousness and you know we can if we want to go there get into a discussion of you know it would have to be a deeper discussion of what consciousness is and the different meanings of the word consciousness and all that kind of stuff all organisms have something that is on the same spectrum as consciousness which is some kind of awareness (laughs) which is a an integrated sensorium you know if they've got more than than 1 sense and especially after you get to the point of encephalization where you've got a centralized nervous system and a sort of a brain there's 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 going to be more and more of a push in this in this direction to have a you know unified model of the world created from different sensory inputs and that's basically consciousness right i mean that's that's the, yeah. sort of the spectrum on on f- from which human consciousness emerges so yes i think that there are people who don't think of it in that evolutionary way like they don't think of it in a gradation and i think that's been that's been the traditional way and it's again we talked about the the sort of we mentioned the the christian idea you know uh, humans have souls and other animals don't that's preserved as the humans have consciousness and other animals don't and and all that sort of thing yeah. It's, However,
1: it's essential. It's essential The same notion. It's yeah, the same notion yeah.
0: So I think that bias exists, and I think that not enough people are are aware of the fact that there aren't clear lines in the sand here. But I also think that there's a even if you want to talk about it in non-conscious terms, in purely you know cognitive terms, or or, or you know as activity in brains, as information processing going on in neural networks, and just completely leave. Any notion of consciousness out of it, I think that there's a very unique kind um, and and amount of uh, of uh, a certain of information processing. I'm um, trying to use very neutral terms that goes on in in human neural networks that doesn't go on in those of other animals. I do think there are unique things that go on in those of other animals that don't go on in human ones as well. But I think there's a special kind of unique. And I think it's associated with, with language and, the, and you know, the, the structure of our thought and all of that. I think there's a special kind of unique information processing which happens to a particular degree in humans, which is what dramatically changes our causal impact in the world. So I think, you know, these things are not... S- yeah, but that... They-
1: yeah, but you can, then you can say you know that there are a specific kind of information processing that happens in the ants' brain based on pheromodal exchange. Sure. Like it, it doesn't happen anywhere else. It's just ants have their pheromones and they exchange information with pheromones, and they're unique in that way. Like, I mean, yeah. again, you can choose an axis in which it will be you know we yeah. are really unique. But I mean, I mean, I'm not disagreeing that you know yeah. our information processing yeah. is vastly different from that of other animals. But, and I'm not, basically, I'm not sure if we are, uh, like, whether our difference in terms of, you know, altering the world comes from the quantitative difference or qualitative
0: difference. Sure, sure. Look, I think that we, we completely agree with each other. In that yeah, it's it's, just, on, it's on it's on a spectrum, and these things are of the same. They're not the difference is not necessarily categorical, but there are some differences that are close <laughs> close to categorical, um, and well, and they are even categorical depending on your level of analysis. You know, all of these things can be looked at from. An yeah.